0: Good morning, Storyline. It is so good to be, to be together. Now, that little clip was from a very sweet movie called The Intern, and um, it was really overlooked. Not a lot of people saw it. It's actually really good, and it's a, it's a movie I would recommend. It's, it's fun for the whole family. But it's about a, a retired gentleman, played by Robert De Niro, who's looking for to find some fulfillment in retirement and finding out as... Um, as a place that he might be in, as out of places he might be in in the modern workforce, he has a vital role to play in the lives of these young people that he suddenly finds himself around. And it was particularly moving for a film for me because at 56, going on 57, I am um, working with high school kids every day. Uh, that combination can make you feel old and out of it. Like there is something new happening all the time, and I'm just as I'm catching up to what happened last year, you know, and so um, I do feel old a lot of times nowadays, and it's not just because I go to bed at 8.30 and I wake up at 3.30 and I eat dinner at 4.30, uh, it's not just because I have a growing capacity for ice cream and a decreasing ability to tolerate loud music, or that I think about my lawn way more than how I look, <laughs> but... Um, I feel old so often because I feel out of it, like out of place in contemporary life. I, I do have a laptop, I have a cell phone, I text, email, and watch Netflix. But if you took those few things away, I live my life as if it's 1985, and I like it that way. I do. I like it that way. I don't, wanna, I don't want any more downloads, uploads, or updates. Please, stop. You know, uh, On Thursday, I, com- I just completed my 33rd year as a teacher. And uh, that's something I'm actually very proud of. But, m- but mostly, thank you. <laughs> this sounds crazy amount of time. But m- I'm more than proud of it. I'm just really profoundly grateful for it. Because I really do love it. And yet... Like I said, it's getting more and more difficult to keep up there, like just even with the way education is going and what's happening in it. One of our um, professional developments, every about once a month we'll have a half day of school and then in the afternoon you come in and they're gonna teach you something new again, you know? And not long ago they handed all of us one of these things and I had no clue. I'm like, are we going diving? What is the story on this? And th- these are 3D virtual goggles. And you download an app on your phone. And then you slide your phone into the top of these things. And it's like this immersive experience. Apple, just last week, I guess, released these goggles where you don't even have to put your phone in them. Um, it's incredible. It's amazing. The things that teachers can do now Uh, To engage students is actually just incredible. It's miraculous. It's bewildering to me. So I watched my younger colleagues with these goggles, and they're doing this all effortlessly. And I'm that guy, right? I'm like the guy everyone has to come over and help (laughs) because, you know, I can barely get my computer on. And nowadays, here's the thing. Things are changing faster than people can. I know I've mentioned that before, but I, I also know that that is just... A very common experience, things are changing faster than we can. Uh, Now, that's always been true to some extent, in a way, like I can remember my parents when we got a VCR and they did not know how to set the date or the time or really even use it, Um, but, you know, older folks back then, I, I still felt like over time they could adapt when I was in middle school, so this is the early 80s. That's when they were putting in cable television everywhere. And my grandparents got cable TV. They lived on Napier, and my grandpa, we called him Papa, was super excited to have more channels. Um, But he was not excited that he now had to get up from his recliner, walk across the living room, and turn the channel again. That, by the way, kids, is a cable box, okay? And when cable TV first came in, We a lot of people had just gotten remote controls, like just a couple years before that. Then we all wanted cable. They put these cable boxes in, and you had to put your kid up by the TV again to be the remote control. So, anyways, my grandpa, my grandma, my mama, and papa, all their kids were out of the house, and so he didn't. And his remote control wouldn't work anymore, just to turn the TV on and off. And so he adapted. He actually adapted. He ran the cable TV line under the living room floor, drilled a hole from the basement beside his recliner, up beside his recliner, and then he took, this is true, he, with a belt and duct tape, he stuck the cable box right next to his recliner right here so he could flip through the channels right here. Everybody who came over had to see this. He was just so proud of this. Um, it was ingenious, he, and he just thought, and he knew it. Papa appreciated the changing world, I guess is what I'm saying. And with some duct tape, he could keep up with it. But now, it's not just things that are changing. It's not just things that are changing. And I think sometimes we blame the feeling out of place or feeling old or feeling disconnected because things are changing. But there's more than just things changing now. There is something new, a new kind of change that's happening that not only makes us older folks feel old, it can make quite young people also feel helpless and sometimes even hopeless. And it's related to what we've been talking about the last few weeks, which is the power of story. And, and what's happening is the fundamental elements of our, of our culture's story are shifting. And that's just a reality. Um, futurist Bob Johansson describes it like this. He says that we now live in VUCA world, and VUCA stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Yes, amen, right? Like, yes, that is true. VUCA world, and here's what he says, and for the first time in history, Americans are no longer sure they can count on the institutions of nation, religion, and society that once upheld our culture, that bound our society together. And I think more than any kind of advance in technology, it is this, the VUCA-ness. It is the VUCA world that can make us feel out of place and overmatched, really, by contemporary life. Last Sunday was Graduation Sunday, and we celebrated um, our seniors in high school from Storyline here who are graduating from high school We talked about the amazing things that they've accomplished, the truly beautiful things that they're involved in, and the bright future ahead of them. And as great as all of that is, for many of us, even for many of them, when you start to talk about the future, it gets a little bit scary. It really does. And so this morning, that's what I kind of like to to invite us to consider and to think about. As confusing as all of the change can be, as bewildering as advancement and innovation can be, what is leaving us feeling old or out of place or overmatched? What can sometimes leave this taste in our mouth or this vision of the future that leaves us like, I'm not so sure about this, is beyond the pace of change and the things that are changing. This is a new and different kind of change, at least for America. And so, what's going on? Now, before we dive into what's going on, I do want to just give a, a quick disclaimer that we're going to be diving into the deep end of the pool this morning. Okay? Every once in a while, my uh, history and philosophy teacher in me kind of comes out, and I think this is one of those mornings. So, hang in there with me. We're going to get where we're going. I promise. Okay? So. What is going on? In my philosophy class, one of the ways that we describe it, this change, this new kind of change that we're going through is an epistemological potluck. Okay? Now, that does not sound appetizing, right? Epistemology is the branch of philosophy. Philosophy is broken up into different branches, but epistemology is the branch that studies knowing and how we come to know what is and what is and isn't true, okay? Um, it's just a way of thinking deeply about that and recognizing that most of us just have these assumptions that we know how we know what is true. And when we really don't, and different cultures do that differently, and with all the things that are changing in the world, all the advancements and innovations, what's keeping us up at night worried about the future is something about this epistemological potluck, and it's this that the contemporary world has really lost its grip on truth. That is, we no longer agree on how we can know something is. Or how do we know something is true. And that really is an unprecedented kind of change. At least in our lifetimes, and in American history, certainly. Okay, so we now live in a culture of fake news you hear that all the time alternative facts we simply no longer can decipher what's true anymore we saw this I mean the last few years it was just all the time right plastered all the time it feels like it's died down now but I have I have a feeling we're gonna be hearing it again a lot more and that is a problem it's it's a big problem when we can't even agree on what is and what is true and how we know what is true and so this problem is one that researchers point, point to, and they, they go, it's, this is a big contributing factor into why the happiness quotient in America is the lowest it's ever been, why um, our anxiety and depression and insom- insomnia rates are the highest they've ever been. This VUCA world, culminating in this existential crisis of credibility, it's really, it feels like a mad world, a mad, mad world that we're living in. So the epistemological crisis is actually especially concerning for the life of faith and communities of faith. It's been especially challenging in that area of life. So debates, for example, about every aspect and detail of doctrine, even the proper place of religion in public life, Those are debates and discussions um, that have been taking place since long before the founding of our country. Those are really old debates. They've been going on. They'll continue to go on. Doubts and questions about things like the validity of the Bible. Those are topics that are older, like much, much older than the United States itself. But doubting the very nature of truth or the existence of it at all that's an entirely new kind of change and an obstacle, a a challenge, if you will, a a dilemma beyond any that the modern world that we grew up in ever presented to to us. We live in a world that is now actually, that we describe it as postmodern, where the nature and existence of truth itself is no longer a given reality, and this is the change that changes everything so i was talking the last couple weeks actually probably the last month with quite a few of the graduating seniors it's very common to ask them so what are you doing you know what's next and it's so i love to hear them talk about their future and some of them look scared and some of them look excited and many of them are just completely disconnected from reality (laughs) you know with with what they think they're gonna do and and all that kind of stuff but more power to them and go for it right um But look, this this concern and frustration that their elders have is not lost on them. It's one of the things that I I saw. They get that the future doesn't seem to be as on firm a footing as it used to be. They see it, they sense it. And, And what I'd like to talk about why and how in spite of all of that, I believe that there are reasons to be optimistic about the future of faith in Jesus and his gospel of grace. But to get there, for that to actually happen, to lean into that, we're going to have to pivot. We are going to have to adapt our story. You see, for the last 500 years, the church has seen itself in a story and then therefore played out a role in that story that, hasn't really changed. The last 500 years of history is generally called and referred to as the modern era. Thus, we're, the change we're talking about is postmodern, right? So what happened in the last 500 years is that the, the Christian church in the West has had a really a single unifying story and mission, and it operated mostly, not entirely, but mostly as an agent of information. That's what it did. It was a dispenser of truth about God and life and why we're here and what's right and what's wrong and on and on and on. That, is what the, that's the, that was the church's role. That's what's, that was its story, if you will. And it worked very well. The church as an institution occupied a very special and revered place in the life of everybody in Western civilization. Symbolized, actually literally, by having usually the biggest most imposing structure in the very center of every town and village in europe and in america like you couldn't miss it like it, that symbol that steeple that massive building at the middle of town was a metaphor for what the church's role was but as our culture has drifted and i think we all know no one argues with that that's true drifted and it's at at this accelerating pace, away from the Christian faith as the central unifying anchoring story, the church has really struggled in the last 20 years to adapt to that reality. And the response generally to this drift has generally been to kind of double down on focusing on information, on explaining the truth, And when that doesn't work, uh, let's just rinse and repeat, and we'll just do it a little louder, maybe a little angrier, maybe throw in a little self righteousness and condemnation. And 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 I get it; we all get it. You know, when you it's just not sticking. That's the how you feel sometimes, and the result has been predictable. And now, in fact, we know that the millennial generation is the least religious generation in the history of America. And it will hold that record for not long because the next generation, Generation Z, is poised to be even less religious. And then they won't hold the record for long because everything we know about the generation that came out is coming after that, Generation Alpha, they will be even less religious than that. So the question for us is now, like what now? What next, now that the story has just been ripped out from under us, what now, what next? How do we pivot, how do we adapt our story? What is it gonna look like for us to run the cable under the floor, drill a hole, and put the cable box by our chair? How do we embrace this change? that just seems so fundamental and elemental because we've never faced a crisis like this before in our culture since our country started. So fortunately for us, this is not the first time something like this has happened in in history, in world history. It is the first time in American history, basically. But it's not the first time in in world history or in the history of the church. There, There have been other times and other places where the life of faith And the gospel of God's grace has not only been questioned, but shamed, ridiculed, even persecuted, and done so in particular by questioning the truth of it. Now, we could look at a lot of different eras, but this morning I want to just look at one real quickly, and that is, believe it or not, 19th century Russia this happened in. So the 1800s, and as devastating as the communist revolution is going to be in 1917 for Russia, what will become the Soviet Union, in the 1800s, Russia was in many ways even worse. It was ruled by an autocratic dictator. It was known as the Tsar, and very similar to a king or an emperor. It was handed out. This is Tsar Nicholas II and his family. And the Tsars made or tried to make near the end of the uh, middle of the 1800s, early 1800s actually, they tried to make these sweeping changes to keep up with all of the modernizing and the industrialization and the transportation that was happening so quickly in Europe and then even in this new country of America. And anyone or anything that stood in their way um, that they deemed to get in the way of progress was an enemy of the state. And it just became just this horrible situation because people were dealt with in the harshest terms if you disagreed at all with the state's version of what's true. Now, one of these people who got in the way was a man named Fy- Fyodor Dostoevsky. And in his early 20s, he was arrested for resisting the czar. And he was thrown into a gulag, essentially, for seven years. And he was very... Um, he was a, literature nut he loved books and the only book the only book he had was the new testament it's the only book he had and he said later that it was through the gospel of john one of the biographies of the life of jesus and reading it over and over this amazing beautiful miraculous story of the life of jesus that he actually came to faith while in prison and then when he got out of prison Dostoevsky went on to write some of the greatest novels in the history of literature. Some of these may be familiar to you. He wrote Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov, Notes from Underground. But it is his book entitled The Idiot that really is all about the adapting and the pivoting that I want us to think about this morning. Pivoting in a way that makes the way of faith work even in the most difficult circumstances so this story is the main character in this story is someone named prince mishkin and this is a character that dostoevsky created to demonstrate what it could look like for a truly good man for someone with a beautiful soul to live in a broken and corrupt society and what could happen through a man, in a time and a place like that.
1: retirement, there's an ongoing, relentless effort in creativity. Tried yoga, learned to cook, bought some plants, took classes in Mandarin. I just know there's a hole in my life, and I need to fill it. Soon.
2: Ben misses work, he misses having a place to go, he misses the environment, the camaraderie. He's looking to be a part of something.
1: Here I am, applying to be one of your interns. I want the connection, the excitement. I want to be needed.
0: OK, Benjamin, now I'm going to ask you one of our more telling questions for all of our interns before you see yourself in 10 years.
1: When I'm 80. Looks like I'm going to be a personal intern.
0: To Jules Austin. Hang in there. For a few weeks ago, we talked about the senior intern program. Seniors in high school or college? No, 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 Seniors in life.
2: Hold on, what? Jules has a, a lot going on. She's the CEO. She knows the speed that her business runs at. She's imagining somebody who's going to slow her down.
1: Hi, Jules. I'm Ben, your new intern.
2: Don't feel like you have to dress up. I mean, we're super cash here.
1: At least I'll stand out.
2: I don't think I need a suit to do that.
1: You want the door uh, open or closed?
2: Doesn't matter. Open, actually. You get used to me. Look forward to it. A really strong friendship forms. He just listens to her, he values her. I think he makes her feel seen and loved, which is what we all need.
1: I never had anything like this in my life this big, beautiful, exciting thing that you created. Remember who did that?
2: Who? <laughs>
0: Ben comes from like the old school man's man
1: world. You should dress to impress, tuck in the shirt. Why doesn't anybody tuck anything in anymore? Oh, I'm asking you.
2: One of the things the movie winds up showing is how one wonderful person can really elevate an entire group of people around them. All the boys in the office cannot believe that this 70-year-old is sitting with them who does not know how to turn on the computer. But little by little, they all come to him for advice. They want to be like him.
0: Ben Whitaker came to this company thinking that he had so much to learn it was the exact opposite. Everyone wanted to learn from him.
2: The truth is something about you makes me feel calm, more centered or something, and I could use that, obviously. Ben is the person who inspires us all to be our best and to look up from our computers and look at each other in the eye and really engage. Let's have a little fun. Look and learn, boys, because this is what cool is. How in one generation have men gone from guys like Jack Nicholson and Harrison Ford to.
0: I tell you, it really is a cute movie. So, Robert De Niro's character, his name is Ben, and he is kind of a Prince Michigan in this film. In fact, in a lot of ways, as I watched it, I was thinking this is like a redo of the idiot almost. He is so good. This character is so good. He's so compassionate. He's so loving that, that people actually think something might be wrong with him. Like like maybe he's just this old simpleton, right? Or he's kind of out of it. But something else is going on here. And while truth might be lost on the contemporary world, I think what Ben and Prince Mishkin are embodying is not lost on the world that we live in. You see, here's the thing. Dostoevsky knew what it was to live in an age of misinformation, where the truth is hidden or distorted. It's obstructed to the point where no one can tell what is up or down. He knew how difficult it was in VUCA world to communicate meaningfully about the most important things in life, especially faith, when the notion of truth itself is questioned. So if you think we struggle with fake news and alternative facts, I promise you that 19th century Russia had it down pat. And they've been working on it for centuries, and they're still pretty good at it, right? And so in Prince Mishkin, Dostoevsky tries to give us a way forward, stripped of the ability to explain the truth like it's just not an option in the world that Prince Michigan lives in. He remains optimistic and hopeful. He lives with a deep sense of purpose and mission. How? Well, with this perfectly simple, unforgettable, and I hope and pray a prophetic phrase, he sums up what his life is all about. He says this, it's beauty that will save the world. Beauty will save the world. I think this is often lost on us because we are people who are living in this crashing wave of modernity <laughs> leaving us and receding as post-modernity kind of takes, puts up its house in, in this world that we live in. So we only know one way of looking at how to communicate the most important things in, in life. But followers of Jesus have been about more, much more than just information or being correct or getting things right about God. The church has been about much more than just truth. Not that truth isn't important, it's critical. But the mission and the witness of truth has always been like a cord of three strands, truth and goodness and beauty. Always. In the modern era, for the last 500 years, where there was a basic agreement, a common epistemology, a universally shared assumption about, hey, truth exists, we can know it, and here's how we know it. The church majored almost exclusively in, in, in truth, and it worked very, very well. Logically formatted information and explanation is a very efficient way to disseminate truth in a society like that. And the church did, and it grew very fast. It worked, okay? It worked. And it not only worked for faith and church, religion, information and truth in the form of a logical argument and debate worked in every aspect of life in the West for the last 500 years. In fact, Nietzsche would argue that it was the church that readied the West for the scientific revolution. Teaching people to think, you know, logically from one step to the next. And that's why the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, and all of the advancements took place in the West. It was because of the way that the church had trained the Western mind. Anyways, this is why it's so bewildering for those of us who've lived, have one foot in each world. Where we knew what it was like in the modern world, but now we live in the postmodern world. It's difficult for those of us over 40 who came of age at that very end of the modern world to imagine what could the world possibly look like, to say nothing of the future of the Christian faith, in a world where truth itself is held in such low regard. We're all challenging information. Anything that anything that comes our way. Information that counters what we want or like or prefer is we just write it off. Alternative fact, fake news, propaganda. So locked into a story where truth is the only way forward and without it, we're hopeless. Like, well, no wonder the future seems bleak. And this is why I think the call now is to adapt. You see, out of the place that we might feel we're in this new VUCA world, there is still a reason for hope and optimism. The the future of the way of Jesus has always found a way to move forward. And I was reminded of this last week, frankly, as I was preparing that talk about the graduates, and I was thinking this might be cool to use some of them as an example of some things in the talk. And I had so many examples from each and every one of the graduates. I, I was bummed I could only talk about three of them they seem to remember something that I know that I've forgotten. And that's that the way of Jesus, yes, it's about truth, but it's also about goodness and beauty. It's also about goodness and beauty. It is beauty that will save the world. And yes, truth may be out of fashion, but goodness and beauty resonate deeply in our society. Last week, we talked about Storyline Story and was about starting a church that was gonna be different enough to make a difference. And as we've looked at the area churches when we were starting, we discovered one right after the other had this great handle on truth and like how to explain it. Like what there seemed to be room for though, however, was a, a community that was committed to goodness and beauty. And again, not that other churches aren't doing that, but that really centered on acts of service and generosity and cultivating environments where the beauty of human connection and God's goodness is not just explained, not just talked about, but it's experienced and embodied. It's practiced. Now, I'm not saying that we're great at that. I'm just saying that that's one of our ideals. That's one of our values. That's what it is that we're wanting to do, trying to do, and hoping to become. And we believe that that pivot into beauty and goodness and the beauty of goodness of God's grace will still resonate, even in a world that can't seem to agree if anything is true. So when truth has been thwarted, oppressed, persecuted, or even denied, the church has always adapted and majored in beauty and goodness because that's how Jesus did it. And when we see something that's truly beautiful When we experience something that's beyond explanation, it draws us in. This is how beauty works, it's alluring.
3: my cave
0: good right love that and um, that's what it does it draws us in that's what beauty does by the way I just Seth Haley is with us this morning he made that video of our band and we're so lucky right and so great thank you so much to the band and to him and um, I'm still upset that all of my scenes were cut out and so I have to talk to him about that. That was not cool. Anyway, um, but this is what we're trying, this is what we've been trying to get to this morning. This, this is where we're trying to get to, okay? You see, as the religious establishment of his day rejected the truth of Jesus and labeled him and his followers as wrong, incorrect, fake news, propaganda, a movement of alternative facts, Jesus, more and more, began to engage in drawing people in to goodness and beauty. That's what he did. He used art and acts of service. He fed people and healed people, and he invited his followers to join him in that. They created large gatherings in public spaces of all kinds of people from all different walks of life. Jesus would use images and language from real life to usher people into An experience that was beyond explanation an experience of truth into an experience of the beauty of God's grace and his revolution of beauty and goodness that was circumventing all of the rules regulations and norms including all kinds of Broke and broken people, empowering the weak and the poor, accepting the outcasts, inspiring, equipping, and loving everyone, regardless of their past or their pedigree. It was so powerful that the political establishment and the religious elite who hated each other conspired together to kill him. And it all came to a head one night, apprehended and arrested. And brought before the political power of that time, the Roman, the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. And I want you to listen to what this chilling exchange between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, are you asking me because you believe this is true or because others have said this about me? Pilate says, your people, including the chief priests, have arrested you and placed you in my custody. What have you done? Jesus says, my kingdom is not recognized in this world. If this were my kingdom, my servants would be fighting for my freedom. Pilate, so you are a king, Jesus. You say that I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come to earth, to demonstrate The power of truth, everyone who seeks the truth hears my voice and then this incredible like spine-tingling response that foreshadows the world as it has now become. Pilate says, what is truth? Do you see what Pilate is doing there? It's much the same thing that people do probably to you when you bring up something uncomfortable or something they don't want to hear. He's saying, Oh, your mission is truth? You're trying to tell me truth? I don't, tough luck for you. I don't, I don't accept your version of the truth. I don't even think truth is real or that it exists at all. It was an attempt to end the discussion. Now, right then and there, what an enormous temptation for Jesus to give up and to give in, to wash his hands of the whole mess, right? Now, I know that's how I feel all too often when that happens to me. And, and much of Western Christianity has kind of followed that path. You know, faced with a culture that's drifting away and a society that can't decide if truth even exists, churches, sometimes even entire denominations, have decided to check out, hunker down, build walls, and we're going to wait this thing out. And when you ask them why, they'll tell you something like, what else can we do? What else could we possibly do when people refuse to face the truth? Or they deny even the existence of the truth? And it's a great question what in the world can jesus what can any of us do now i know faced with that same thing i get mad i get loud i fume with righteous anger i storm off i give up but here again as always jesus points to another way on his mission to share the power of the truth of the gospel of grace faced with people who reject the truth he doesn't get angry He doesn't hunker down or disengage, and he doesn't get loud. In fact, it's at this point, he stopped talking altogether. And he does something so amazing, so unpredictable, and thoroughly gracious that it literally changed the world. My friend Brian, one time we were talking about this scene in the Bible, and he said to me, he didn't fight to be right, he surrendered, he served to be good to be beautiful. Jesus didn't allow what the people around him thought about the truth to stop him from living it out, from demonstrating it. Stripped of the ability to explain the truth, he pivoted. He adapted to beauty. And he did the most beautiful thing in the history of the world. He gave his life for ours, demonstrating once and for all that the power of truth is goodness and beauty, and it's been drawing people in for 2,000 years, and our mission, our story is to do the same. We can argue and yell and scream when the powers that be challenge us with what is truth, or we can take that energy and that passion and pour it into, as we talked about last week, being the message, embodying it. Maybe in VUCA world, the best way to demonstrate the power of truth is not by explaining it, but by living a life of goodness and beauty. And with our inexplicable lives of goodness and beauty, begging this question from the world, like, why? How are you living like that?
1: To know why I keep on pushing past the limit To know why I live every day
0: Katie. So good. So, so good. The Bible says, become friends with God because he's already friends with you. And as out of place as many of us can feel in this mad post-modern VUCA world, the invitation of Jesus remains. It is to demonstrate the power of that truth. Become friends with God. He's already friends with you. And if we'll adapt if we'll pivot, we can do that like he did through the way that we live and love. Through the, by being the message, by begging the question, how and why do you live like that? Because beauty will, really only beauty can, and in Jesus, beauty did save the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and for this opportunity to be together. We thank you so much that you have come to us, that you have come for us, and in the face of every obstacle and challenge, even when we question the nature of reality itself and what is and is not true, even that didn't stop you. You turned to goodness and you turned to beauty to draw us in. I pray, God, that you would um, help us to see opportunities to live that way ourselves, to be the message of grace, to beg the question, how and why do you live that way, so that then maybe we can answer, you'd have to know my friend. God, we thank you so much for loving us like that, so relentlessly. And we pray that you would give us that vision for our, our lives with others. As we leave here this morning, God, I pray that you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. As in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week.